Thank you for Josh working back in the sound booth because TJ's sick and for Josh overseeing the worship and making sure that the praise that we gave to God this morning was clear in the room so that the congregation could participate. Thank you for the voices of Marcy and Kirsten who in the midst of struggling with the very words that they were singing were able to lead the congregation into your presence this morning, Lord. I'm asking that as we shift into the sermon that nothing would be different, Lord. That your spirit that abides in us would give me the words that I need to speak to the people of God. Father, I thank you for this role that you have given to me, for this office that I hold as a pastor and as a preacher and a teacher in this local church. And I pray that I would honor that role by seeking to honor you first. It's not about what humanity thinks. It's not about my reputation. It's for the sake of your name, God. This morning as we open your word, we desire to see the kingdom established in the hearts and minds of the church. As the church prepares to go and evangelize the lost, we wanna see dead people come to life. And your plan is that that would happen through the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so today, Lord, as we talk about the gospel, I pray that you would bless the study in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are in our series on the parables. And I'm just here to warn you that today we will not touch a parable with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> And next week, it'll probably be the same. And that's okay. Because here's the deal. It would be irresponsible, borderline naive of me to think that everyone in the room who is here right now is ready to just dive headfirst into a series on the parables. We are all in different areas in our spiritual journey. And we said it last week, we're not going to leave a single person behind. In our study last week, we asked the question, who did Jesus believe that he was? I had such a great time preaching that sermon, I almost lost my voice. Yeah. Some of the people who call this church their home were like, man, I really hope that the new families that were here knew how to interpret your zeal as passion and not as anger. And I said, hey, <laughs> I hope so too, but I'm not going to not be me. <laughs> and this morning, because I believe that it would be irresponsible or borderline naive for me to think that everyone's on the same page, that everybody's just ready to go, we're pumping the brakes once again, and we're going to ask some questions today to prepare the hearts and minds of all of the people in this room to be ready to even approach the parables, not just dive in head first. How many of us have been in a sermon series or showed up at a church and been like, I have no idea what they're talking about. 
The language that they use is foreign to me. The concepts, never heard them presented. And yet the expectation is, is that I just understand. So I better play along and pretend and hopefully in time I'll just come to understand what seems to be the ununderstandable. <laughs> What's the word? I, I don't know it. You don't know it. I made it up. I made it up. It's all right. It's all right. I'm in the business of making all kinds of words up. As long as they don't have four letters, we're okay. Right, Nathan? That's correct. So, are we okay with saying that we're in a series on the parables and then taking our time together to walk toward the idea of what does it actually look like to understand the whole so that we can be familiar with the particulars? Right? Context is king. The practical definition of exegesis that I offered to you guys, yes, uh, last week, I stole from Daryl Bach, because nothing that you get from me is original, and he says that to understand or to better understand the particulars, you need to be familiar with the whole. Where are the parables found? That's sort of correct. Then this is why we're doing this. The parables are found in the synoptic gospels. There's not a single parable in John's gospel. There are parables in the Old Testament. Okay? So Jesus was doing nothing new as a rabbi and as a teacher. He was just embracing the cultural standards for his time. But when we were asking our questions last week, we were trying to navigate who did Jesus believe that he was? Because if he was a liar or if he was a lunatic, then his parables should be thrown to the, to the, to the side. Because we shouldn't be studying the words of a liar or a lunatic. If he was just a legend and he never existed, well, we could have just as much fun studying Greek mythology or the Egyptian Book of the Dead or the, you know, Atrahathis or, you know, Homer's Iliad. And those things would be fun, but they wouldn't change our lives. But if he was Lord, if he was Lord, then it would actually behoove us, it would be in our best interest to study the parables very critically. But again, you have to understand the whole if you want to be more familiar with the particulars. So today we're going to ask the question, what is the gospel. Don't, don't answer yet. What is the gospel? Now, Nathan already hollered it out. Context is king. Context determines meaning. Ben Witherington III, New Testament scholar, says, a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. A text without context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. And it's true. I can make the Bible say whatever I want. One of the greatest movies that Denzel Washington ever starred in was the book of Eli. 
And people wanted the book, not because of what was in it, but because they knew that whoever had the book had power. I can make the Bible say whatever I want. We're not into that around here, though. We're just not into that around here. Because context is king. Context determines meaning. Okay? And if we want to exegete the parables properly, then we need to be familiar with the whole before we look at the particulars. And the parables happen to be very particular portions in the narratives of the gospel. So we need to think critically about answering the question, what is the gospel? How many of us know that this term is not unique to the Bible? It's not. If you walk through the door today thinking that the gospel was a Christian word, you were wrong. Okay? Sometimes we just haven't been taught things like this yet, and other times we've willfully ignored them. Not in here. Not in here. What is the gospel? Well, linguistically, we could say that the term gospel translates the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. news. So the Greek term euangelion means good news. But it has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Historically, if we're speaking prior to the life of Christ, prior to the letters that were written that occupied the library of the New Testament canon, the term usually referred to good news of political or military victory. This means that this word was in circulation in the known world that had been conquered by Alexander the Great long before Jesus of Nazareth was born. And the Romans took it, and they really coined it as one of their terms, and they kind of deified it in their own culture. Let's take a look here at what history teaches us. After the assassination of Julius Caesar, pause. Every political science major who's gone to college will study the life of Julius Caesar. We have more documentation pointing to the historical individual known as Jesus of Nazareth than we do Julius Caesar. So if you believe that Julius Caesar is a historical figure, then you must believe that Jesus of Nazareth is a historical figure. Connection back to our last sermon, he's not a legend. The Jesus mythers are wrong. And we can take them to task if we do our due diligence. Study to show yourself approved. Not unto man, but unto God. Today we're studying, okay? After the assassination of Julius Caesar and with the Republican turmoil, a struggle for power ensued between Mark Antony, Caesar's trusted young lieutenant, and Gaius Octavian, Caesar's grandnephew and adopted son. In a stroke of genius, Octavian sought support from a neglected and weakened Senate. Emboldened by his deference to them, the Senate gave Octavian their backing and named Antony an enemy of the state. 
Anthony fled for his life. Octavian pursued and finally defeated him in the Battle of Actium in 31 BCE. The good news, here it is. The good news, the euangelion of Antony's defeat and Octavian's victory, it moved the masses to proclaim Octavian as their what? As their Savior. There's the Greek term for the same word we use to refer to Jesus as our Savior. Who single-handedly brought peace and security to Rome. Now Rome occupied and had authority over the known world. So the gospel according to Rome was that Gaius Octavius had brought in peace and security to the known world. The gospel is not unique to Christianity. So when you ask the question, what is the gospel, or when someone asks you the question, what is the gospel, you should ask them to define what they mean by gospel. Are they talking about it from a secular perspective? Like this? Let's look at another example. It's connected to this. There is an interesting inscription. Oh, pause. Archaeology must have uncovered this for us. So we are thankful for the... Science of archaeology. It's an applied science, by the way, it's, which is different than like doing biology or uh, something like that. There's an interesting inscription dating from around 9 BC. Go back to the other slide. So 31 BC, this is over three decades before the life of Christ. And now over two decades after the battle of Actium was won. Go ahead and go forward. An interesting inscription dating from around 9 BC regarding Caesar Augustus. This is Gaius Octavius Augustus. They've given him the title Caesar now. It contains references to his birth date, whose very name, Augustus, means revered one, and who was also called the divine son or the son of God. It's no different than the Egyptians worshiping Pharaoh, yo. The Romans weren't the first ones to do this. He was the savior and the bringer of peace. Go back. It was the message of the good news of his victory that moved the masses. Okay? Go forward. This is from the preen inscription. You can Google it and look at it. Documentation of it. The inscription says that the birth of Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world. Craig Evans notes the polemic in Mark's gospel in chapter 1 in the opening against such a message that Jesus is actually the Soter, the Savior, according to the scroll of Isaiah, and that he has come and that we should make way for the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. Amen. Okay? So you can see the polemic. You can see the critique and the argument against Rome's gospel in the very first gospel ever authored in the church in its earliest form. Amen? Amen. But the gospel is not unique to Christianity, which is why we have to ask someone to define the gospel when they ask us the question, what is the gospel? Now, we're still trying to answer it, but we have to narrow the field of our question. Anybody ever watch Corinne Jean-Pierre answer questions? 
I don't think I've ever seen her answer an actual question. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to get political here, but I'm just saying that there are people who are really well-schooled in neglecting to answer the questions that they're asked. We don't want to be those kinds of people. We want to be a kind of people who give an answer that is clear and confident. And if we don't know the answer, we want to be able to say with confidence, I don't know, but I can find out. Okay? So we want to narrow the field on our question. What is the gospel in a biblical sense? This is the question that we want to answer today. We're not asking historically in a world civ sense. We're not asking politically or historically in the sense that Rome had their own gospel and that the gospel that brought peace and security to Rome ushered in the Pax Romana. We're not, we're not interested in that today, although those great things to talk about. We're asking what is the gospel in a biblical sense? Let's see here. Let's go to the next slide. It's my opinion that this is the gold standard lexicon that we should use when doing a word study. Okay? And if you're like me and you don't read Greek, then you need like a letter alphabet to navigate your way through so that you can find the words. It takes some time, but it's well worth it. This is known as BDAG. You can see third edition BDAG right here. Bauer, Danker, Arctic, and Gingrich. Those are the authors and editors of this lexicon. They offer three definitions when it comes to the gospel. Found on page 402 in the book. God's good news to humans. And there it is. Another definition that simply means good news. Now, how many of us are familiar with Mark chapter 1 verse 14 through 15? Let's do a sword drill. First person to Mark chapter 1 verse 14 and 15 needs to stand up Okay? All right. Dasha got it. It's all right. Leslie, I want you to find Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. You're going to, and then hold what you got there. Okay. So, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 15. Remember, we're trying to answer the question, what is the gospel? And in the narrow sense of the question, what is the gospel in a biblical sense? Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 15. Dasha, when you're ready, go ahead and read it loud and proud. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee and told the good news that comes from God. He said, the time has come. God's kingdom will soon be here. Turn back to God and believe the good news. All right. Thank you. So here we have Jesus preaching, proclaiming the good news. And we have Jesus giving the instruction, the doctrine, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe what Jesus is preaching, because what he's preaching is the gospel. 
Notice that definition number one has nothing to do with the written word. It has everything to do with the spoken word. Okay? Now, is Jesus just borrowing the cultural, politically associated terminology of his day so that he can try to poke at Rome and be seen as a seditious traitor? Well, I, I would say no. But I would say that Mark's writing is polemic and an eye poke to the Roman government. But Jesus, if we look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Think about the preen inscription. As it is written, here's where he turns the corner, as it is written in the, in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah predates the battle of Actium. Behold, Isaiah writes, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, let's not get it twisted. Mark is talking about Jesus here. And so let's see what Isaiah has to say in verse 7 of chapter 52. And let's see if Jesus is borrowing the language of the culture in his day or if he's reaching back further than that into the Hebrew scriptures, okay? Go ahead and read it loud and proud, Leslie. Right. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How lovely on the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God Thank you. Okay, so the one who proclaims good news publishes salvation. And they're speaking to Zion. Zion is located in Jerusalem, so this is a metaphorical way of pointing to the nation of Israel. Okay? My argument this morning is that Jesus is drawing on the text of Isaiah when he says that the kingdom is in your midst. Hear the news that's being proclaimed. Isaiah was talking about me coming. John made way for me in the wilderness. Listen to my words, repent and believe the gospel. Okay, context is king here. It's a polemic against the Roman government in Mark's writings, but Jesus is standing firm on the Hebrew scriptures when he's speaking and teaching and preaching. A polemic is a harsh critique of something, okay? So like if you speak out against something or if you write an article against something, you're writing in a polemical fashion. Okay? Good it's a good question. Let's look at definition number two. Details relating to the life and the ministry of Christ. Remember when I was preaching last week and I said you cannot separate the words of Christ from the deeds of Christ? I could go all the way back in my mind to a mixtape message that Leanna Cronister gave in here and she said don't try to separate the miracles from the miracle worker. Okay? And if you go back and you assess the miracles of Jesus, he did them in word and in deed. Okay? 
So this is talking about the details. Now, is this written details or is this oral details? Well, that's a great question to be asking. And I think that BDAG did a really good job of putting it as the hinge between the first and the third because a book dealing with the life and teaching of Jesus can also be a gospel account. Now, I have a message that I preach on the gospel that usually irritates people. Because I can prove to you that there's more than one gospel. In fact, I just did that. Rome has their own gospel. <laughs> Mark has his own gospel. Matthew has his own gospel. Luke and John have their own gospel. Paul has his own gospel. He says, I preach my gospel. <laughs> so again, when we're thinking about answering the question, what is the gospel? When the church says there's only one gospel, what they mean when they say that is there's only one gospel that saves. <laughs> but don't get it twisted. There are false gospels. There are infancy gospels. <laughs> There are pseudopigraphic writings that cloak themselves as gospels. <laughs> we can go on and on and on. Church, do not be naive. Okay? Don't be naive. The word gospel is not unique to the church. And that gets me into trouble with people. But I don't care. <laughs> what do they say? The door swings both ways? Peace, bro. Like, you know... We're not looking for friends here. We're looking to be sanctified in the truth. God's word is what? Truth. <laughs> Tried, trustworthy, and true. Amen. So we've got three definitions in the lexicon for the gospel alone. We've got historical, linguistic, different issues of the gospel. I mean, you hear this kind of stuff from the pulpit all the time. There's only one gospel. They take Paul's writings in Galatians out of context. If anyone comes and preaches any other gospel than the one I proclaim to you, let him be anathema. Yeah. And that predated Mark's gospel. So when Mark's gospel hit the streets and they were copying it down, did Paul write to Galatians and say, don't read Mark's gospel because that's a different gospel. No. But men will stand up here and women will stand up here all the time and tell you there's only one. There's only one. And they're just wrong. You could join me in the minority view or you can stay with the cool kids and hold the majority view, which is wrong. <laughs> the choice is yours. You don't have to, you don't have to agree with me. That's, Matt. That's my gospel. <laughs> I mean, until you can come up with other evidence... To the contrary, proving that everything that I just laid out up until this point is false, I would say you're standing on sand. And we know from the parables that our foundation is firm. Amen? Okay. All right. We'll get there, though. We'll get there. So have we defined gospel? Have we successfully answered our first question? I'll let you be the judge of that. What are the Gospels 
And how do we read them? We got to go through all this. This is not the kind of sermon that people are like chomping at the bit. They're like, man, I feel like I'm in a seminary class and I'm supposed to take notes. How am I supposed to remember all this? I don't know. Ask God to help you. (laughs) It takes years of dedication. Oh, to the one who laid his life down for me. I'd rather read and memorize this than get crucified any day of the week. He did the more difficult thing, okay? The least we can do is take our access. Where's my phone? You got a computer in your pocket. Access to information and dedicate five minutes a day, Dr. Heiser says. Five minutes a day to reading something about a topic that you don't know. And in 30 years, people will be like, how do you know all that stuff? He's like, five minutes a day, bro. 10% is 2.4 hours in a day, you said. Yeah. Dr. Heiser says, try for five. I'm like, that's my boy right there. That's, that's realistic, baby. <laughs> I can do five minutes. Amen. You close the door in the bathroom, go in there. I don't have kids to bug me. That's my five minutes. Well, I'm de- let's not stress the illustration here. <laughs> All right, moving on. What are the Gospels? See, this is how we have fun studying the Bible. Saints, are we a joyful people? Yes. Are we excited about learning about the character and the nature of God and approaching the text of Scripture? I mean, we can make this fun. We can laugh. We can have a good time. Be interact. I'm good with that. I don't want you to think like talking head, must digest, information only. No, that's dumb. (laughs) That's not how we learn. At least that's not how I learn. Okay, so what are the Gospels and how do we read them? Okay, the Gospels are a library, so this is helpful. There's more than one Gospel, so this is helpful. The Gospels are found in a book. So this is helpful. And the Gospels are about the Son of God. Jesus from Nazareth, so this icon is helpful. So graphics can help us to remember simple things so that everything I just unpacked for you can be recalled. History book, the gospel existed before Jesus of Nazareth was ever born. Right here, here's my history book icon. Got a World Civ textbook from my college or my high school days on my shelf back home. That can help me remember. Like, do, do the thing. Have fun with it. So what are the Gospels and how do we read them? Well, I love this, okay? You ever heard the name Justin Martyr? Okay. He lived from 100 AD to 165 AD, so that's 2nd century because the 1st century is 0 to 99. Okay, 2nd century, 100 to 199. 3rd century, we get it, right? Justin Martyr writes, and he's a Christian apologist, probably of the earliest nature, but not only is he an apologist, he's a philosopher, okay? So for all of the Christians who are too fundamentalist in their, like, approach to the text to be like, we don't need philosophy, it's the handmaiden of theology, (laughs) okay? And 
I'd rather be in good company with Justin Martyr, who was both a philosopher and an apologist, as opposed to just someone who is an apologist or a philosopher. You know, William Lane Craig, R.C. Sproul, two great examples, very different sides of the spectrum, both apologetic philosophers. Okay, so there's two examples for you in our modern day. But Justin Martyr, he described the Gospels as memoirs of the apostles. Now, I love this description, memoirs of the apostles, because it's a double plural. So for my English mishap this morning, which Kirsten so kindly called me out, I've got the double plural now to try to redeem myself. (laughs) Do we know why it's a double plural? Say that. Say that out loud. Two S's. Two S's. Memoirs, plural. Apostles, plural. Again, you could build a graph like this in five minutes or less, screenshot it and have it on your phone forever. The Gospels are not books by Jesus. They're books about Jesus. Okay? That's another simple way to answer the question in a biblical sense. We don't know that Jesus wrote down anything except for when he took a knee and put his finger in the dirt. Okay? We can't prove that Jesus wrote down anything. And even the story of him taking a knee and putting his finger in the dirt, that's late at a station at best. If you read your ESVs or if you read your NASBs, they're going to be like, this is only found in the later manuscripts. It's like the end of Mark's gospel in chapter 16. So the gospels are not books by Jesus, but they're books about Jesus. And this brings us to the nature of the gospels. The nature of the gospels, while they exist in plurality. Okay? Before Mark ever wrote his gospel, we already talked about it. Paul was teaching his gospel. He did it in Galatia. He did it in Thessalonica for sure in both of those places before any of the gospels were ever authored. Okay? So we want to talk about the nature of the gospels. And to talk about the nature of the gospels, we want to remember that they exist in a plurality. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I love this. This is from Fee and Stuart how to read the Bible for all it's worth. We need to understand that different Christian communities had need for a book about Jesus. Amen. Jewish audience. Roman audience. Just a quick question here. Does the underground church in China have a culture that mirrors ours here in the United States? No. Absolutely not. So do you think that if the Gospels were being authored today, it would probably be best practice if they had a Gospel that really spoke to them in their culture and we had a Gospel that really spoke to us in ours? (laughs) Okay. So we need to understand that different Christian communities each had need for a book about Jesus. And it just so happens that the Holy Spirit provided For a variety of reasons, the gospel written for one community of believers did not necessarily meet all the needs of another community of believers. Gentile, 
Greek-speaking Gentile to a Greek-speaking audience. Now, Romans are Gentiles, okay? But we've talked about this in our previous series. The English word ethne is simply nations or people groups. And so when you see the word Gentile, it's a bad English translation because what it actually means is it's, it's meaning to highlight different people groups. You know, so if you have a Chinese individual and a Japanese individual and you have a Korean individual, you have three distinct ethnos, three distinct eth languages, ethnos, with three distinct ethne, nation rep represented by three different people. Now, it gets even more difficult when you go to a place like India and there's tribal people and it's like you could be on one block and it's this tribe with their language and you go to the next block and it's another tribe with their language, but they're both Indian from the country of India. <laughs> but their lives are just drastically different. Okay, so for a variety of reasons, this is the wisdom of God. For a variety of reasons, the gospel written for one community or group of believers did not necessarily meet all the needs in another community. So one was written first. We talked about this last week, Mark's gospel, in my opinion. That's also the most widely accepted view. Mark's gospel was rewritten, and it was rewritten twice, first by Matthew and then later by Luke. Both Matthew and Luke wrote for considerably different reasons, as you can see on the screens. To meet considerably different needs. Go back to our definition, our practical definition of hermeneutics. We want to get the message from their world into our world. And one of the biggest ways that we're divided is we sometimes wonder what the situation was that caused Luke or Matthew to rewrite Mark's gospel. Nowhere does Matthew say, well, I know Mark's already got one of these and his is really good, but I'm going to write a second one and I'm going to write it for these reasons. We don't have that. We just have his manuscript. So they wrote for considerably different reasons to meet considerably different needs. And they wrote independently of each other. Although Matthew and Luke had some dependency on what Mark wrote. Now you can have a source and quote from the source and still write independently of that source. Does that make sense? Anyone who's ever done a research paper knows exactly what I'm talking about. Independently of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have the author John, who in the most widely accepted view wrote last, and he wrote a different kind of gospel. There it is, everybody. Scholars, not Matt Oberlander. Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. John wrote a different kind of gospel. If it's different from the synoptics, is there only one? No! He wrote a different kind of gospel for still yet another set of reasons. By the time John wrote his gospel, Gnosticism and other heresies were creeping into the church. The Stoics and the Epicureans were causing all kinds of problems because they were getting saved, but they were bringing their theology from the pagan world into the church. There was no closed canon yet. There was no council of Nicaea working out the Trinitarian doctrine. So John wrote his gospel 
again, is a polemic against the heresies that were creeping in. And it's not necessarily that people were creeping in to bring these heresies to the forefront on purpose. Anybody have baggage that they've dragged with them into their Christian life? Yeah! And the whole church didn't want to say amen. <laughs> but we do. And we look and we're like, oh my gosh, the Aryans, how could they be so stupid? <laughs> look in the mirror, bro. How much dumb stuff do you do day in and day out and you're a Christian? I mean, I mean it's true. I can't remember his name right now. I did this last week. By the way, the word that I mixed up last week was not Mishnah, it was Midrash. But that's a side note. But I, I can't remember his name. He's a church historian and he, he works with, with R.C. Sproul. And, uh, he says, Sproul believes that Thomas Aquinas is the greatest Christian philosopher that ever existed. And then this church historian says, but I think that it's origin. He says, if R.C. Sproul was in the room with me right now, he would vehemently disagree. By the way, the church burned origin as a heretic. <laughs> but he says origin is the greatest theologian that ever existed, not because he came to the best answers, but because he asked the best questions. Think about that, church. How often are you just worried about having the answer you're so distracted, you don't even know what right question to be asking. Guilty. It's for this reason that we need to appreciate in our day and age the access that we have to all four gospels. Every house in this room that's represented in this room, I bet dollars to dimes has more than one hardcover Bible. They've got the Bible Gateway or the YouVersion app on their phone. Like we have things that the church in its origin could never dream about. Five minutes a day, yo. Five minutes a day. So we need to appreciate the access that we have to the four gospels. Why? Because it gives the church universal a more profound understanding of the nature of Jesus in his personhood and in his work. And all the theologians in the house said, ah, high Christology. I want to know the nature of the Son of God. Three, we need to recognize that the goal of the gospel writers looking at this was to tell the story of Jesus in a faithful yet relevant and persuasive manner for their readers. And again, all our fundamentalist brothers are like, I hate that word relevant. You don't need to be relevant. Just read the King James and get to know it. And yeah, it's like, what? I already got to translate the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. You want me to translate Victorian English on top of that? No. The gospel writers had a desire to be relevant. Matthew wanted to be relevant to his Jewish audience. Luke wanted to be relevant to the Greek. Yeah. He himself was a Gentile. That's right. Like, ah, oh, the church just wants to be relevant today. They wanted to be relevant then too. Yeah. You got a question?
understanding that it's a lot more clear and obvious why in this particular Amen. Silas is doing his five minutes a day, everybody. That's what it looks like. Yeah, give him a round of applause. That's to the glory of God right there. And again, you're right. Looking at something while thinking about it and hearing about it, it, the puzzle becomes clear, right? Again, to quote Dr. Heiser, the mosaic gets clear with every step that I take back because the picture actually comes into focus. And so again, like, man, we got to be on this. We're trying to answer the question, what are the Gospels and how do we read them? And we're looking at this chart and we're unpacking these three ideas that I just dropped for you. And it's like, ooh, like how come in the past, every time someone asked me what the Gospels are, I just simply said, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Oh, that's because that's the answer I learned in Awana's. That's a great answer. But we're adults seeking to evangelize the lost. And they're not interested in bumper sticker Christianity anymore. You know? They read he who dies with the most toy still dies. And they're like, four letter word it. Right? Because they don't want to deal with the overly summarized version of the gospel that they've been handed. And you've got Christians walking out the door because they don't know any of this and no one is taking the time to teach them this and then they go to college and they get inundated with what the world wants to teach and they're like, ha ha, fairy tale. It's like, no, no. That's why we have to do this on mornings like this together as a family before we just dive into the parables because someone in the room is going, I had no idea about any of this and this stuff's important. Is this the word of God? Do we love it? Do we cherish it? And are we thankful for it? Well, then how are we showing it? That's the question. It's for these reasons and others that I, and I invite you with me, to stand with Justin Martyr. The Gospels are memoirs of the Apostles. These four accounts, they stand side by side. Because at one and the same time, they record the facts about Jesus. They recall the teachings of Jesus, and they bear witness to Jesus. It's not just their nature that they're not individualistic and that they're communal in the library of the canon of the New Testament. It's a part of their genius that God inspired four different authors for four different audiences for four different reasons to give four different answers. And all of them landed on the same person. It's a part of their genius. And it's important for us if we want to properly exegete the parables and understand them in a hermeneutical sense. So having defined what the Gospels are, I think we can now attempt to answer the question, how do we read them? This is my favorite part. This is my favorite part. How do we read the Gospels? Literally. You just take every word at face value in a very narrow wooden sense, close your Bible, walk away, you got it, right? No. <laughs> no. And you're about to see why we don't do that. And when people tell you to do that, 
If you're in their church, honor them and just kind of nod. You know, maybe pull them off to the side in private and ask why they would teach something like that and give them a reason to explain without just trying to take them to task and argue with them and prove them wrong. But man, do not read the Bible in a very overly literalized sense and in a very wooden, narrow aspect. Don't do that. Jesus was not a boring teacher. I mean, come on. We unpacked it in our three case studies last week. He looked at the paralytic and he said, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) Is that what the paralytic wanted to hear? Absolutely not. And immediately all of the Pharisees were like, blasphemy. Was Jesus boring? No. Sometimes the shock and awe comics, I think they study the life of Christ. You know? They're willing to say things and do things that not any other person would be willing to say or do. And Jesus is very much like that. He's not a boring teacher. So to answer the question, how do we read the Gospels? We got to understand the question through the lens. Put your lenses on. Of genre and literary form. Now, genre... Are they biographies? Don't even like go down the road with someone who's done a little bit of reading because they're going to be like, oh, they're biographies? So do I read it like a modern biography or do I read it like an ancient biography? And then if you get in the room with like someone who has done just enough theology to be dangerous, they're going to be like, they're Christological biographies. <laughs> and you're going to be like, well, tell me what Christology is. They're going to be like, well, it's the study of the nature of the Son of God, the Son of Man. Okay. And I am supposed to understand that how and apply that how, <laughs> right? And then they're like, well, I don't know. I just read the book and now I'm just telling you what I read. <laughs> well, that's not helpful. That's why we went through the dictionary definitions in our study last week. And then we went to practical definitions because sometimes the dictionary definition doesn't help. All right, so we have to understand this through the lens of genre and literary form. So whatever genre you classify the Gospels in, and trust me, scholars are all over the map on this, so you'll be in good company. There's not just one right answer. The more important thing to think about is the literary form. Hyperbole. Hyperbole. Somebody look up Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 through 30. When you get there, stand up. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 through 30. Someone else look up Luke chapter 14, verse 26. When you get there, stand up. Someone else look at John 21, 25. Who's got Matthew? Okay, Matthew? Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 through 30. I'll give you about 30 more seconds to get there while I get there in my own Bible. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 through 30. Jenna, when you got it, read it loud and proud. Still want to read the word literally, everybody? (laughs) 
That's why every pastor who stands in the pulpit and says that you have to read the word of God literally, and then they pride themselves on it when God gives grace to the humble, but he abhors the pride. When they put pride on that, you have to ask them, why do you have two eyes and two hands? And shouldn't the church be walking around blind and maimed? If we are literal, but you, sir or ma'am, are a convenient literalist. That's what we should call them. Because they only like to take the word literally when it best suits them. Okay, we're talking about hyperbole and exaggeration. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Luke chapter 14. Is that you, Jim? Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Go ahead, read it out loud. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. I mean, doesn't the law say that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves? Doesn't Jesus teach a parable connected to the reality of who is your neighbor? And yet... Jesus now is saying that I have to hate those closest to me, my most beloved in this life. I must hate her. And if I don't hate her, I'm not eligible for discipleship. Still want to read the word literally? Anybody? No. Jesus is expressing an idea that he is to be prized and cherished among anyone and anything. That's what Jesus is getting at, okay? John chapter 21, verse 25, we're going to see that not even Je- it's not just Jesus who uses hyperbole, but it's also the gospel authors. John chapter 21, verse 25. Who's got that? Gabby, go ahead, read that loud. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Can you hear it? <laughs> I suppose... that there wouldn't be a library in all of the world that had enough size to hold every book that could be written in regard to all that Jesus did. Don't read that literally. It's exaggeration. It's meant to drive the point home. Jesus does it when he's teaching. It's no wonder that his gospel authors Use it in their writings. Amen? Okay. So hyperbole. Identify it. And don't read it in a way that's going to cause me to butcher my body, okay? I've already done that enough. (laughs) Metaphor and simile. Metaphor and simile. All right? With metaphor, the comparison is implicit. With simile, it's explicit. So simile uses words such as like or as in the comparison where, uh, where a metaphor does not. Matthew chapter 5, turn in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. I'm a granular, iodized piece of preserver. Kosher. At least I'm kosher. But what if I want to be pink Himalayan? You know? Like, come on, yo. Like, look, let's get to the text, right? Let's get to the meaning of the text. You are the salt of the earth, 
But if the salt has lost its taste, right? Jesus here is teaching his disciples that in a world that is decaying and dying because of sin, they are to be the preserver of truth, the heralder of truth. Amen? Okay. That's the metaphor, the simile. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Turn in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. No. You know? I'm not a sheep. I'm a human being. I've been created in the image and likeness of God. I have nephesh soul. Sheep have nephesh soul. Sheep lack the one thing that I have, the imago Dei, the image of God. Okay? There is a categorical difference here. Don't overread this. Be wise as serpents. Serpents. <laughs> and innocent as oh, doves. I mean, that's how we have to read the Bible if we're going to overly literalize everything. Slithering little snake, you know? Like, no. No. And look, this is what makes the Bible fun. Like, coming to the text of Scripture and knowing these things and being on the lookout for these things is like being on a treasure hunt with a map. How many gold nuggets can I find? You know? Narrative irony, okay, irony, Luke chapter 12, verse 16 through 21. This sermon's going to get me in trouble with a lot of people. I'm glad you guys are here to back me up. Luke chapter 12, verse 16 through 21. Oh, we are touching a parable. Ah! And he told them this parable, saying... The land of a rich man produced plentiful, and he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will do this. (laughs) I'm so smart. Cue the irony. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods, laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is going to be required of you. And the things you prepared, well, whose will they be? So the one who lays up treasure for himself is not rich towards God. The story is like cruising along. Hey, man, I'm working hard. I put into my 401k. I got my super money market account. I got about five grand in the checking account after I pay bills. Hey, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Oh, boom, I'm dead. Your sole focus was your legacy. It wasn't my kingdom. It wasn't my word. It wasn't my will. And for that, you must depart from me for I never knew you. The irony of the story is supposed to make you go, not me. Course correction. Okay? Rhetorical questions. Jesus loved rhetorical questions. All the wives in the house were like, 
I hit my husband with the rhetoricals all the time. All the husbands were like, yes, they do. And then the dads get them back with aiming them at the kids because they can't aim them back at mom or wife. (laughs) At least they shouldn't if they're smart. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I got to pick up the pace here. Sorry, guys. Matthew chapter 5, verse 46, okay? Matthew chapter 5, verse 46. We're talking about how do we read the Bible, and we're talking about the importance of literary form. Matthew chapter 5, verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? You know how you answer a rhetorical question? You turn it into a statement. If you love those who love you, you gain nothing, right? Matthew chapter 6, verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Like, the response is, (laughs) you can't. (laughs) Therefore, don't be anxious. About anything? Well, when you are anxious, Peter says, take that anxiety and cast it at the feet of Christ. Why? Because Christ cares for you. How beautiful the reality to know that the God of the universe cares for you. And even when you're doing the thing that he asks you not to do, he says, it's okay, my son. It's okay, my daughter. Just throw that at my feet. I got you. And all the dads and moms said, I do that for my children, and I will continue to do that for my children because they are life to me. Boom. There's the anthropomorphic or like reflection of God and his relationship with us and our relationship with others. Love God, love people, everybody. Okay, parallelisms. We're going to touch three different types, and then we're going to wrap it up. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Parallelism. This is synonymous parallelism. Now, when we went through our Jonah series, and we looked at Jonah chapter 3, I did a quick off-the-manuscript teaching on how to read Hebrew poetry. Is anybody surprised that Jesus is implementing the Hebrew poetic structure in his teachings as a rabbi. Nobody should be surprised. (laughs) He's doing what comes normal to him. Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. It's not like uh, redundant. (laughs) It's poetic expression and its parallelism is synonymous so that each line develops the next line. You cannot read things like this in isolation. Don't try to proof text your way. Be like, ask and it will be given to you. Just ask. No, because there's something that follows that and it's pretty important. Take up the responsibility of seeking. You got to do something in it. You can't just ask with your mouth. Your life has to follow your request. Seek and you will find. Oh, and when seeking is not enough, knock on the stinking door. Parable. Be like the lady who was so annoying with the ruler that he was like, ah, just give her what she wants. Or like the neighbor who won't go away at night. Come back to him and come back to him and come back to him. Parallelism, synonymous parallelism. Mark chapter 4, verse 5. Mark chapter 4, verse 5. Other seed fell on the rocky ground. Mark 4, 25, sorry. I was like, that's not it. For the one who has, 
more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is a contrastive parallelism. God is contrasting the righteous with the wicked or the faithful with the rebellious. Okay? The line, the second line, helps to develop the thought in the first line. Developmental parallelism. Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. It's going to be the last example. There's so many more. We're barely scratching the surface, but time is the greatest enemy of the preacher, and everybody knows that I don't get an extra hour on today, even though it's daylight savings. <laughs> Not that much. You ain't staying an extra hour. No, just kidding, just kidding. Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. You see the development in the idea? Christ said, I and the Father are one. He meant it. If you receive me, you receive the one who sent me. It is developing the idea. So it's our job to know about these things. Literary form. Literary form is absolutely an integral part of your Bible study. Do not come to the Bible and just read the Bible thinking, I'm just going to take it at face value. It comes from a different culture. It comes from a different time. It comes from a different language with different customs, different geography. Okay? The list goes on and on and on. We need to know these things if we're going to study the word of God well. And it's for these reasons that we can't just dive into the parables head first. Okay? Are you guys still with me? Yeah. Okay. All right. Parables. Short stories. We're not going to read any of them. I already violated my statement about touching one with a 10-foot pole. But they're short stories with two levels of meaning. Okay, we're going to get into this next week when we do our Bible study, okay? Because there is an argument that goes all the way back in, in regard to how the parable should be read and, and, and interpreted and understood and applied. And we have to know the different ways to approach it because my way of approaching it is probably going to be different from Autumn's and Autumn's is probably going to be different from Caleb's and Caleb's is probably going to be different from Rob's and so on and so forth, okay? And that's okay because even the scholars argue on how things should be interpreted. But we have to understand that parables are stories with two levels of meaning. How many of us have read The Prodigal Son? Okay? How many of us immediately equate the father in the parable with God? It's not a trick question, you yeah. know? But there is a detail in Luke's gospel where the prodigal looks up and says, I have sinned against heaven. And he's not talking about his father. Okay? So even within the parable, God seems to be distinct from the father. And how many times have we just been told the father is God and the older brother is the Pharisees and you are the younger brother. <laughs> and it's like, no, more often than not, I'm the older brother. <laughs> I got a bend to be a Pharisee. I can enact laws like a champion. Just ask Alan. So have we answered our question today? 
And when I, ask, when I ask that, we should make it a plural. Have we answered our questions? What is the gospel? What are the gospels? How do we read? And we even know now when we see the word read, we really mean interpret the gospels. Reading them vertically. Put that slide up real quick the, with the graph. Reading a gospel vertically is helpful. Okay? Reading a gospel horizontally, especially the synoptics, is super helpful because you get that dynamic perspective. But don't start by reading horizontally because then you miss what the author was intending for his original audience to pick up. So start vertically. Get real familiar with the whole before you want to get super familiar with the particulars. Okay? Does that make sense? What's up, Rob? Sure. Yeah, so like, if God is giving us an express command, the first thing we want to do is identify who's he speaking to. Is he speaking to his disciples, like his close disciples? Is he speaking to the people that are just following him? Is he speaking to his enemies, or is he speaking to everyone in general? Because that's going to set the context for the command. You know what I mean? And so like, yeah, it's not bad to read the Bible literally, Thank you for bringing that clarification to mind. But it's not helpful to just read the Bible literally. Time and a place. Context determines meaning. Okay? So we've answered our questions. I think it's safe to say that when we come to the Gospels, the first thing we need to do is slow down. Drive slow, homie. Put on Paul Wall. Hit the car. Turn the sub up. And drive slow, homie. Pump the brakes. Nobody but me. Nobody's a con. Oh. Okay. All right. Okay. Paul Wall, people. Paul Wall. Texas. Chopped and screwed. No. Nope. All right. I repent, Lord. I repent. I repent. I repent. All right. Hey, I still need to be sanctified. But the first thing we do when we come to the Gospels, the first thing we do is we slow down. Read critically. That five minutes a day, it would be better to read five verses than to think I got to cram a whole chapter in, yeah. right? Like, get off of the checklist to-do mentality and just spend time with God. To study the Gospels requires that we first identify the genre and the literary form. If we fail to do this, if we fail to do this, we will fail to read the Gospels as the authors intended, Look at their audience. At this point, I think it's safe to say that reading requires interpretation. Knowing what the text says and knowing what it means are two different things, saints. We could go down the path of the historical blessings. I already mentioned one aspect of it with more evidence about Jesus than Julius Caesar. The catechetical aspects of how the text instructs us. The liturgical aspects of how the text gives us something to worship and a way to worship it, him. The exor 
temptation aspects of scripture that feed our spirit when we're spiritually starving, the theological aspects of the gospel that deal with Jesus being the divine son who reveals the father, the apologetic aspects of bringing correction when there's error, the evangelistic, this is my favorite. If it wasn't for an evangelist in your life, you would not be here today. The evangelistic aspects of the gospels. Who are we going to talk to about what we learned today? Who's not in this room? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Saints, have we been deceived into settling? This is the question we got to ask ourselves. Some of us have been going to church for 10 plus years, 20 plus years, 30 plus years, and we had no idea that this was important. Have we been deceived or are we deceiving ourselves? Are we meditating on the word of God or are we simply reading the gospels? Do we know the difference between reading and studying? Do our children, this is a good one, do our children see us spending time with God in his word? That's what I want to know. If I asked your kid, how often do you see mom reading their Bible? Or if I asked them, how often does dad intentionally get away from everybody just to open God's word? What would their answer be to me? Are we spending time in the word with our children? Or are we just satisfied with rote memorization? Like, I took my kid to Sunday school. They got the word. It should be good, right? Paul Washer says, we anticipate that our kids will color a picture in Sunday school of Noah's Ark and that by the time they go to college, they won't fall away. Don't let that be you. Okay? Why do we study the Gospels? Here it is. We're going to close with prayer. We study the Gospels because in the end, we agree with the Apostle Peter who said to Jesus, you have the words that give eternal life. We believe in you. We know that you are the Holy One from God. That's why we study the Gospels. Because we agree with the Apostle Peter. When we take the time to study the Gospels, we come to understand that in them and through them, we are all brought to the point of radical decision. It's either discipleship or rebellion. There's no riding the fence in this church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, for this study, for your word, for the scholars and the shoulders that we stand on, for the people who are so much smarter than us and have dedicated their lives to you and for them putting that into practical writing, Lord. I could not have done today what I had done if it weren't for them and if it weren't for you, Father, none of us could do anything. So we praise you for the breath in our lungs and the life that we have. Let us use that breath to glorify you and our lives to bring you honor. In Jesus' name, amen.